So let me ask you a question this morning. If, if someone were to ask you, or if I were to ask you, what is the most significant moment of your life? How would you answer that? Now, thank you all for answering that. I mean, see how deafening it was. But, but think about that. I mean, we might think about, well, it was the, the day I was born because when I was born, you know, life began. Some might say it was the day I was born. Some might say it was the day I started walking as a child. And from that moment on, you were a walker and uh, your mom and dad's life was never the same after that. Uh, you might say when you spoke your first words and after that you were a talker and a lot of us haven't stopped since then. Uh, we might say that uh, the greatest event of our life was... Um, maybe a time in school where we learned something new that just forever changed our life. We might say that the greatest time in our, in our life was um, that first date we went on. We might say the greatest time of our life, somebody laughed at that, what was that? Uh, some, the greatest time of our life might also be uh, our first kiss. Remember your first kiss? Maybe that might be something that, that happened with that. It might be uh, our, our friendships, it might be those special things that we have. For some of us in the room, the greatest moment of our life that we'll remember the most is when we um, found out about God, when we realized that even though we're sinners, that we are still a treasure in the eyes of God and that uh, redemption is possible for, uh, for who we are. So, so as we think about those significant events in our lives, and I want to you know, tackle, have you tackle that as you go home today and think about what is one of that most memorable time in my life? Well, when we get to the story of Jesus in the garden where Pastor Pam left us last week, and we realize that um, the disciples probably would not say that that night in the garden was the most memorable night in their lives. In fact, um, that's the night that we saw betrayal. That's the night that we saw um, uh, abandonment. That's the night that we saw um, all the things that were negative about that. So I don't think that the, any of the disciples would claim that that was the most significant moment of their life, was the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and, and hauled off onto a mock court. So when we think about these things and we realize what comes with that, uh, others might even say that, um, uh, that Jesus' uh, going to the cross was a failure, and they might say that, you know, he should have never done that because then he could not have realized the significance of overthrowing Rome that so many of the zealots and even Judas and others were trying to prompt him to do. But the fact that Jesus, you know, didn't die the way of going into battle but went to the cross, some might say it's a failure. So it depends upon how you look at it. And it depends upon where you, where you take it from there. Let's, let's go to Matthew's gospel this morning. And let's look at a, a snapshot of this event uh, that happened in the garden. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 26, uh, verses 47 to 50. Here, here's what Matthew writes. Uh, while he was speaking, this is while Jesus was speaking. So Jesus is gathered at this place. We've got to remember that this garden was a place well-known by the disciples. It was a place that, that they all knew about. It was a place that Judas certainly knew where it was. Uh, so that's how he was able to lead the, these individuals there. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him was a large crowd that was armed with swords and clubs. They were sent from the chief priests and, and the elders of the people. Uh, now the betrayer, which is Judas, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man. Now if you've ever watched you know, any of those uh, movies, we know that uh, a kiss is either something that brings us together and binds us in a powerful way of love, or a kiss can be a symbol of death, like the kiss of death, that I'm marking this individual and that's what Judas was doing. And he basically said, the man I kiss, arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, uh, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he killed him. 
And I always find it interesting that, that Judas constantly called Jesus, Jesus rabbi. And uh, that, that whole affinity of Lord and love and agape and those things really weren't in his vocabulary, but he called him rabbi. It was always this kind of official kind of thing. The intimacy just did not seem to be there. Uh, some wrestle with that and say that this was Judas's way of pushing away the, of his love from Jesus. So then Jesus replies to that. He says, friend, do what you came for. Now, Jesus is being betrayed He's being sent off to be arrested, and Judas, the one who's doing this, what, is, what does Jesus do? Jesus continues to call him part of family. And I think we have to really note that. That's really important here, that Jesus said, friend, go and do what you have to do. So the men step forward, they seized Jesus, as Matthew writes, and they arrested him. Now, a couple of things that, that come to clear, clarity here is, Judas is not the one who arrested Jesus. We need to get that straight. A lot of people say, well, Judas is the one who arrested. No, it's not. And, um, you know, in fact, Judas is the instigator of the arrest. Judas is the one who began the events that was the culmination of the arrest. But Judas's character is quite unique here. Judas is inspiring the anger and angst amongst all the others, getting them to do his dirty deed and getting them to arrest Jesus as he kind of sits on the sideline. Now think about that for a second, because um, haven't you found yourself at a place, haven't I found myself at a place where, where we're really like championing our own event, championing our own desire, championing the outcome of something that we want, and we're kind of rousing and crousing people around us to do ultimately what we want done, but yet we don't have the guts to do it ourselves, right? And, and so we see this is really significant, because Judas doesn't have the will in him or the strength or the mano a mano, so to speak, to have it done, but he has to caress and carouse others to do his misguided deed. So unlike Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, uh, John tells a little bit different story. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptic gospels because they're all very, uh, they run very parallel to each other. But um, they just talk about the large crowds came with Judas. But John, John says it's a cohort of soldiers, Roman soldiers, so to speak. And, and so this really builds the impetus of what's going on that night. Um, instead of just thinking about a, a crowd of people, you know, what's a crowd? Five or six, 10, 12 or whatever. But John says it's a cohort. Now, who are these Roman soldiers? This is the time of the Passover. So Rome has called in many of its soldiers from the surrounding areas into the area of Jerusalem because they do not want an insurrection to happen. They want to safeguard. Pontius Pilate does not want to lose control. He does not want the Jews to uprise against him to overthrow Rome out of that. So every year at Passover, because millions of Jews were coming, or a million Jews were coming into that area, he did not want to be overwhelmed and overpowered with that, so he would call soldiers in. So a cohort of soldiers, as John says, is at least 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers have been called to go arrest Jesus. And it says not just a cohort of soldiers, but it also says that the temple guard was called in. And the temple guard were the um, soldiers, so to speak, that protected, or the guard that, that protected the Sadducees, which was the ruling body, the, the Pharisees, the religious body, the scribes, and the other religious leaders. So when we look at that, it, it likely was a thousand men armed that came to arrest Jesus in the garden. And, and to put that in perspective, I want you to think about, uh, let's just say that you've committed a crime 
and you open the door of your house and the police are saying, we're here to arrest you, and you open the door and there's a thousand police officers surrounding you. That's what was going on. Now, others would say, well, why those crazy disciples? I mean, we always want to rag on the disciples, don't we? Well, they were cowards, and they, you know, and all that. But think about it. A thousand men with with, uh, spears, with swords, with shields, and back then what they did was to make it even sound even more larger than it really was, was they would bang their swords on their shields. Bang, 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 as they're walking through the darkness. And others are carrying these torches. So so these small group of men is not only hearing the thrust of all of these thousand soldiers coming, marching in, but they're seeing this garden area illuminated by all of these lights that are coming. No wonder they were afraid. No wonder they were scared. No wonder they didn't know what to do as all that was happening. But John, John transitions us kind of away from the Jesus who is pondering and wondering, uh, should I go to the cross? Uh, Wow, this is going to really hurt. Um, but I, I know I need to do it, and uh, why have you forsaken me? What am I going to do, God? Should I, shouldn't I? John's gospel portrays something totally different. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are into the humanity of Jesus. Remember, we believe that Jesus is God in skin. We call that word incarnation. He is perfect, born of deity through the flesh, through the womb of a woman, Mary. Okay, so God in skin walking on earth. John, his his gospel, he's defining what's called Christology. He's defining the nature of Jesus the Christ. So therefore, John writes with even greater authority saying, God is in control of this. God is fully aware of the arrest. God knows what's going to happen next. And, And Jesus literally stands in front of the crowd of a thousand soldiers, and he begins to not even second guess what he's doing, and he challenges them. Why are you here? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Why are you here? We're here for Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to arrest him. I am he. Take me. Leave these men alone. Do you see the the difference in the dialogue that's happening? And so something something, uh, great is going on here. And we see the significance that God is firmly in control of this whole situation of this journey to the cross and the things that we see. In, that, in this whole dialogue of what's going on, Peter, the, the apostle Peter, gets very impulsive and compulsive, okay? And Peter is the one that in most instances was never officially elected the, the lead apostle, but Peter is the one that usually is the one that speaks up or acts on behalf of the others, and we kind of see that he's a leader. And John records that Peter pulls out his sword, which is probably more of a dagger, and he swipes off the ear of the priest slave Malchus. The other gospel writers just say that a disciple did that. Now, why does John want us to know it's Peter? Are you ever impulsive? Do you ever act out on your own without thinking first? You know, when you think about Peter, and to know it's Peter, that's the connection that's you and me. And Jesus rails that, and he, and he basically condemns what Peter's doing. And he says to Peter, put that sword, put that knife, put, put that weapon back in its sheath. And he scolds him because he says to Peter that the culmination of the kingdom's purpose is not going to be something that's going to be done using a weapon that man has made. 
And he says that you will not stop what God has planned for the redemption and salvation of the world because of your compulsiveness trying to take out a sword and, and, and making a human battle happen here. He even goes far enough to say, Peter, don't you know I could call down 70,000 angels who would defend me, but I'm not gonna do it. Jesus is making sure that we understand what that road to the cross is really about. See, so often we, we get into these uh, contests, and you know what kind of contests I'm saying, I'm not gonna use the word, but contests. And we start railing against people of different religions, like our Jewish brothers and sisters, and, and we start blaming them for killing Jesus. We start blaming this, blaming that. And what we find out is, yeah, Rome sent the army. Yeah, Rome was the one that legally had the authority to offer the execution of Jesus. But what we, what we need to find out, though, is what was God doing about it? When Jesus looked at the soldiers and, they, and he said, what do you want? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. When he said, I am he, he is speaking in the Greek words. He says, uh, basically, that he is saying, um, Amagoini, that, that I am he. And what that translates into is the Hebrew word Yahweh. So when we see the I am statements in John's gospel, Jesus is communicating, I am Yahweh. Yahweh was the sacred name of God that was never to have been spoken. And he's basically saying to the crowds of people that are there, the religious Jewish persons who were there, as well as the Romans, I am he, I am creation itself, I am life itself, I am the one. And we find out that that's when the soldiers, a thousand soldiers, fall to their knees and fall back. They're not worshiping him, they're afraid because they've heard about the power of God and they're having second thoughts. So, so Jesus, in doing this, what he's saying to them is, I am he, I have all this power to stop you from doing what you have been sent to do. But here's the twist. He didn't. In fact, he surrenders without any kind of tussle at all. He just walks off with them. And that's why he was mad at Peter. Because he said, I need to show who I am. I am a prince of peace. And Jesus makes that journey on the onset. So we, we wrestle with these things and we begin to call out people. But what we've got to understand is that the moment Jesus surrenders himself without incident... God has made the choice to go to the cross. Nobody forced him. He chose. And we've really got to get that right as Christians. Because so often we're like, well, he was beaten and he had to suffer. And all. Yes, all that's true. But we cannot forget that God chose willingly to go to the cross as a demonstration of God's love for all of us. And when we get that right, the cross has a different meaning. It's a more powerful meaning because then it's not an act that someone forced Jesus to do, but it's one that he willingly said, I will do this because of my love and for the salvation of sins of the life of the world. So Jesus was not one who was weak. He was submitting to God's plan. 
And Paul tried to describe this in Philippians 2, where Paul writes, who being the very nature of God, he's talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The men who arrested Jesus had no power over him at all. Those swords could not have defended. Those swords could not have overwhelmed, could not have overpowered. They only had the power that he was willing to give them over him. And so he gives himself up. He chose to go to the cross. And perhaps Peter, had he not been sleeping when Jesus told him to stay awake, when he was praying, maybe Peter would have understood that and would not have ever unsheathed his sword in that moment. So Jesus' final events were built upon obedience. They were built upon um, passive obedience as well as active obedience. Active obedience uh, means that um, he knew exactly what the end result would be. He, he lived a, a sinless life. He was, he was righteous, and through his righteousness that our sins can be forgiven. The fact that he is perfect, that he becomes the paschal lamb for us, that through his sacrifice our sins are forgiven. He became um, a passive in a sense that um, he knew that once all this happened, that through his obedience and by being totally obedient, the fulfillment of the plan would come. So he says, take this cup, I'm willing. And when he says, I am he, he says, I'm not gonna flee, but I'm gonna go with you so that this can be fulfilled. You know, earlier I asked you the question, what was the most memorable moment of your life? And I hope you go home and wrestle with that. And, and as you're thinking about that, um, where I wanna really get you to this morning is the most memorable moment of your life is not something that happened in your past. Folks, what happened in our past is gone. We can't change it. It's already happened. The outcome is already rolled out. It's done. Some of us will say that the most memorable occasion in my life is the future, the things yet to come. Boy, I can't wait until that happens because when that comes down the pipeline, boy, am I gonna be A, B, and C. If we live in the future, or try to strive for the future, and that's all we're striving for, we're gonna lose as well, because the future has not yet come. So the greatest moment of our life is the here and the now. It's right now. Take your hand and put it over your heart for a second. Do you feel your heart beating? Do you, do you feel it? It's the here and the now. And as your heart is beating, it's a reminder to you. It's a reminder to me that our greatest moment is this moment right now. It's right now that God is with you. It's right now that you are meeting God in a new way. It's right now that you can choose to give your life to Christ. It's right now that you can say, I wanna step away from a sinful life. It's right now that you can say that I wanna claim the obedience of the cross. It's right now, it's right now, it's right now. It's not yesterday, it's not tomorrow, it's now. And when Jesus made that effort right then and there to surrender peacefully and to go to the cross, the meaning of the cross totally changed. And that's the event we really need to focus on. 
Because had he not done that, the cross would mean something totally different. You see, the psalmist writes, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We also know that the prophet writes in the writings as well that, that uh, God's mercies never fail because they are new every morning. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most now of every opportunity that you have. This meal is something that we call a sacrament. And a sacrament in the life of the church is something that we believe that God is a part of. It's in mysterium, something God is doing that we can't really see, but we trust and believe in our faith that God is doing something. So we use bread as a symbol, we use the contents of a cup as a symbol, and we use those symbols to remind us of what Jesus did many, many nights ago when he was in the upper room. And, and we use that and we call that this sacrament is what we call a means of God's grace. And grace is something that we want more of, right? What is grace? Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, unprocurable love of God. But yet God loves us so much that he gives it to us freely. And therefore, we want more of it. So when we come to this table, as we take a piece of bread and as we take the juice that comes with that, we believe that the real presence of Jesus Christ is here. And we believe that in the here and the now, we are as close to Christ as we can ever be. Not what happened in our past, not what we hope that happens in the future, but right here and right now. And whenever we take this sacrament, it reminds us that because Jesus freely went that night in the garden to be arrested, that he has conquered our sin and that we are new creatures.